This episode of Who Even Cares is brought to you by fuck.com. Go to fuck.com and then enter the Who Even Cares code next to the radio microphone and you'll receive 20% off of uh, shit and balls. So go to go to fuck.com today, people. All right, let's do it. Cue the music. Uh, fucking da 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 Who even cares? Welcome everybody to Who Even Cares episode 7. I hope I'm right. This is Mike Yarsky. You can reach me at... Mike Yarsky on Twitter or the Who Even Cares Show at gmail.com. I'm gonna How how have you been, people? I don't think I've asked that in one single fucking episode yet. How are you? How are you feeling? What's going on in your inner your rich inner life? How's that monologue treating you in your head? How is that anxiety being processed into your body? How is that depression being carried around by your sheer force of will? All that type of shit. How are you? You can't even tell me. You can email me, but you can't respond right now unless you're talking to yourself, which, you know, I can't fault you for that. That's technically what I'm doing under the pretense of asking you how you are. So I hope you're doing well. Uh, I don't care either way. Uh, Reference the title of this podcast. And uh, excuse me. (coughs) The sickness continues, people. And it will until we die. On that note, I would like to comment on something on the internet as if, once again, anyone gives a fuck. Here it is. It's called Stop Policing My Daughter's Appetite. All right. Here's the beginning. You're not going to eat all of that, are you? Said a stranger in a cafe to my four-year-old daughter, Violet. Violet was tucking into a slab of chocolate cake with ice cream on the side. The woman meant her comment to be friendly, but it was the only thing she commented on to Violet. Now just hang in with me, because I'm not disagreeing with anything in this article about uh, fat shaming or feminism. Just just stick in with me on this. Uh, Violet is in kindergarten, and already people... Oh, I... I, I <laughs> that's how I would say it. Let me, let me do the enunciation differently. Violet is in kindergarten, and already people... Even complete strangers are judging her food choices, intimating that she should distrust these choices and that her happy... Oh my god. You know, I have a college education. Are judging her food choices, intimating that she should distrust these choices and that her appetite should be ignored. What's worse, Violet is learning that women policing other women's appetites is a great conversation starter or even a bonding ritual. Okay. Uh, dot, dot, dot. Women are bombarded with unsolicited diet advice on a daily basis about what's okay to eat, when it's okay to eat it, what macronutrients we should be avoiding this month, and how many calories we should or shouldn't be consuming. Okay, fair enough. I'm with you until the next two paragraphs. The first one reads as follows. All of this reinforces the belief that we can't trust our bodies. Okay, stop. First off, you can't trust your body. All right, it's going to die on you, and you don't even know when. Your anxiety in your brain perceives a threat that isn't there. Your back has not caught up with evolution in that it still only functions as if you're on four fucking legs, 
and it slowly fucking goes out of alignment with the result of excruciating pain. You'd think your body would have the decency to not punish you for getting ahead of itself evolutionarily. Dude, you can't trust your body. You know, you go bald, but you can have an aneurysm at any time. Literally a blood clot could happen in your brain without any prompting. You could drop dead from a heart attack at 40. And it could happen because of nothing. Your family history could be clean as a whistle. You don't have diabetes. You don't have alcoholism. Everyone's got to have one of those two, though. Let's see. Oh, I got it bad on both sides. You got depression, anxiety, alcoholism, diabetes, uh, heart disease, and rheumatoid arthritis. And though it's not technically hereditary, uh, there is polio still. <laughs> on one side. This is why my family are considered a bunch of hipster, artsy douchebags. Uh, we, we pick... We're so antiquated over here with our records and our turntables. We even have to commit to uh, long-lost diseases. Uh, anyway, your your skin gets flaky. Your nails get... You can't even trust your bodies to have your fingernails and your toenails grow at the same speed so that when you go to clip them, you can hit all 20 at once. But instead, they grow at different speeds, so you have to clip 10 at inconvenient intervals you know okay next paragraph or next sentence we approach our bodies as if they are unruly and deceitful enemies that need to be battled with and contained of course you do of course you do that's exactly what you should be doing your body thinks that ice cream and garbage and chocolate cake tastes good and it can't even recognize the uh, high fructose corn syrup in it it becomes an addict. Ugh. It is an enemy. Some parasite will crawl into it. Fucking Toxoplasma crutzi or whatever it is. There's a parasite that makes you like cats. <laughs> and don't, you, you don't mind the sound of cat... Or the sound of cat piss. Do, do, do cats, when they pee, even make a sound? I've never heard a cat piss or shit. I don't know if it's just they're secretive about it or what. You know, they are secretive about it. My aunt, boop, had four cats. It took her about six months to figure out which one was taking a dump on her TV before she got home from work. All right? And there's love for them there still. And it's probably because that's true. There is a parasite that allows you to be more comfortable with the smell of cat piss. That's why when you waltz into someone's apartment, you know, one of those one of those um, emotionally compromised women that has like a big crush on Batman because Batman is emotionally unavailable. So, of course, she has cats, that type of shit. It's because they have a parasite in their brains. Now, it might be the case that my own neuroses and insecurity and want of a companion might develop into an affinity for a dog, but at least my interest in the dog is chemical internally. It might be because of a serotonin imbalance, 
but at least it's something that should be in my body in the first place, a.k.a. my brain. Ugh, why am I bitter with cat I guess because I don't think they have good taste in pets. Um, where was I? All right. Your body is an unruly and deceitful enemy of you. It is. It could break at any second. And it causes you pain. You get headaches. Your eyes are nearsighted, right? Anytime you try to put a band-aid on it, you take off the fucking band-aid and it pulls out the hair all over your body. Once again, it's showing great resistance to self-care. My balls are out in the open. Now I know that's because I needed to make more cum as a human being. And so they dropped out of my body because the outside was like a refrigerator compared to the 98.6 inside. But you know... It's not comfortable, people. And guys end up, they have a dick that clouds their whole peace of mind. That's all. And uh, the arches on our feet often. We need to wear shoes to get the right uh, movement so we don't fuck ourselves up. Again, we need all kinds of shit to help us out. Okay, the last, the last sentence and that we need to enlist a small army of soldiers to assist in conquering it. Yeah, they're called pills. Aspirin, ibuprofen, Imodium, Tylenol, uh, Simply Sleep, Unisum, uh, Flintstone Vitamins, Metamucil. I guess that's a powder, but that's, that's even a smaller army of soldiers. Those little grains of orange powder. Antidepressants, anticonvulsants. Fucking painkillers, benzodiazepines, immunosuppressants, all that shit. Yes, you need a small army of soldiers to assist in conquering all the bullshit that your own body throws your way. And you need to battle its cravings and needs for alcohol, high fructose corn syrup, blah, blah, blah. All right, here's the second paragraph. We don't start out this way. Babies are born understanding their own appetites. (laughs) No, they're not. (laughs) They're not even making memories. I don't even think they can see. All right, they know when they're full and when they're hungry. They know when they're uncomfortable. But I don't know if they know that it's that they're full and that they're hungry consciously. They just cry about... Parents still have to figure out what they're crying about. And then everyone around babies says... Everyone around babies trusts them to regulate their own appetites. (laughs) That's why I just leave my baby in the pantry. You know, it'll get food when it needs it. You ever gnaw its way through some instant oatmeal without boiling the shit? What else do I have in my... You know, I do have applesauce in there. It'll drown itself in a fucking jar of Mott's. Because it can't resist the corn syrup in it. I come home and there's a baby in my applesauce jar. It's like, well, that's where he was going to end up anyway. Maybe a glass jar instead, but... um, Maybe a pickle jar would be more appropriate. Or a fucking... Uh, 
you know it'd be nice if I crawled in if I crawled into my pantry and my dead baby was in it. I think I would want it pickled in a uh, moonshine jar. You know? One of those corn whiskey jars. You ever walk through a liquor store and there's all of a sudden just randomly you see a bunch of whiskey that isn't brown and you're like, what the fuck? And it's corn whiskey for like 15 bucks a handle. But it also comes in these masony jar type things. Speaking of mason jar type things, I walked back the, from this uh, store, like a like a oh this is a like a college bookstore, <laughs> and uh, in the window they had two things: one, mason jars with wine glass stems at the bottom, and solo cups with wine glass stems coming out of the bottom. It's like is what is. If I had my kid in a ma- my my little tiny baby in a mason jar, what am I gonna do with the wine stem? Like toast to it? It's not like I'm gonna sip from my baby moonshine. You know, give me a break. Uh, I don't know. The rest of this the rest of this is all spot on. But I would absolutely say the following: one, don't trust your body. You need to. Uh, Cultivate an adversarial relationship with it in order for it to uh, to uh, submit to your will. Or else, people, or else you'll be happy and you'll die young. Both of which are great ideas, but they don't allow you to do great things for yourself, like uh, eat yourself to death. Or drink yourself to death. For some reason, there's a shame around knocking yourself out early. It's like, hey, I'm doing all you kids a favor. Are you paying for my Social Security? No. Are you paying for my Medicare? No. I'm not even going to cause sidewalk congestion. I'm not even going to be on one of those old people shuttles that uh, go the speed limit and cause havoc in traffic. I'm not going to be one of those people that, you know, the bus has to... Tilt all the way fucking down. So everyone is tilted in it like they're fucking teetering off the cliff in that old South Park episode. Oh my god, that was a sneaky situation. Right? That South Park episode? Where it falls into a pit of ice cream? Which is what I wanted to do to begin with? Then it tilts all the way. And then just one person gets rolled in. Then the driver takes like five minutes to get rid of three seats. And I'm not going to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. So I'm going to enjoy all the tasty shit, find out I have some awful disease, and knock, and move to Oregon and knock myself out the, uh, the new-fashioned way. <laughs> That's what I call dying with dignity. I'm going to be dying the same way that my baby dies, just basically crawling up into a pantry and eating myself to death. But metaphorically, not as literally as my own child. Let's be honest, people, I'm not going to have a child. Okay, so, there's only a handful of things where I would say do what your body tells you. Like, when your beard starts to itch, definitely shave it. Or your bush. Well, I don't know. Are you supposed to shave your bush when it itches? Doesn't that just spread the crabs all over everything else or not? 
Or are you just supposed to shampoo that? You get like this. Uh, you get like this Agent Orange for crabs of shampoo, and you just spray it all over your fucking Vietnamese jungle down there. You just massage it in, and then they all drop like. Uh, well, I was gonna say like flies, but crabs are even worse. Are crabs worse than flies? Hmm. They're not worse than mosquitoes. I mean, crabs don't give you malaria. Did you know that mosquitoes kill more people a year than people kill people? I I don't even believe that. (sighs) That was, like, disappointing for me to find out, even. I just would have felt so comforted in my misanthropic ways if people were number one. If we had beat the mosquito in killing people, that would have been, oh, yes. Yes. That we probably suck more blood out of each other. Uh, You know, I was with my boyfriend when I was in L.A., and I saw one of those books about psychic vampires. One of those people that just emotionally drains the people around them. Or uh, emotional vampire, not psychic. Emotional vampires. And I asked my boyfriend, I said, uh, do you think I'm a, do you think I'm an emotional vampire? And he says, I think you're an emotional cunt. (laughs) All right. Uh, I love when my misanthropic outlook gets confirmed in a way. It's not what's the ideal attitude. It's that that ideal attitude is not to be negative and misanthropic, right? You could be misanthropic all you want. There's going to be evidence in your whole life for why people suck, okay? It's just going to be there. So the thing is, is not to have a negative attitude about how much you hate people, but just to have a positive attitude. So when you inevitably see all the evidence that confirms your case of why people suck balls, uh, just laugh it off. That's probably the best attitude. If you're going to whine and piss and moan about why other people are horrible, I'm just going to write it off like you have a learning disability or some shit. Like, how do you even have the capacity to be surprised anymore? How are you still disappointed actively? This is what I learned. Assuming that folks will do as they say, turns out that's holding them to an impossible standard. And I don't mean about emergencies or um, last-minute happenstance cataclysmic disasters. I just mean you will be resented for remembering for them what they said they were going to do. Just in life. So, there's really no reason to hold on to the grudge per se. But it's a great defense mechanism, uh, being disappointed with people. It's certainly something we all share. I just, uh, I don't want to hear any more bitching about it. I just want people to go... Oh, yeah, sure, you know, and you just see all the evidence, and it becomes fun. It becomes funny. Like, this guy wouldn't give change to a beggar because he assumed that he was going to go to a liquor store about it. 
And he was like, yeah, you're just going to go to the liquor store. And then the beggar goes, I could do whatever I want. And then the other guy goes, so can I. And I ain't helping you for shit. <laughs> it's just this one-up exchange of awfulness. That it, you just got to see it as a carnival or else you'll go insane. It's sort of a disappoint me, shame on you. Uh, disappoint me again. I'm just a fucking idiot that can't infer conclusions on prevalent patterns of human behavior. So if you're not a misanthrope, you're a fucking idiot. If you are a misanthrope and you piss and moan about it, you're a fucking idiot. If you're a uh, misanthrope that can make some funny out of it, uh, you're also a fucking idiot. Because uh, we're all fucking idiots. But uh, I just like some fucking idiots more than others. Uh, which is my own goddamn problem. <sighs> Speaking of homeless people. I am fucking exhausted with this story that keeps floating around. That I don't even think is true. I don't think it's happened to anybody. But everyone keeps sharing this story. You've heard this story. Oh, you won't believe what this homeless guy did to me. I was walking down the street with my leftovers from such and such restaurant, right? And this beggar asked me if I had any food, and I, and I was so generous, right? And I gave him the food, and then the beggar goes, ugh. Or says, do you have any more? Or goes, this is gross. And then I'm like, fuck you, beggar, right? Because he's not grateful for the food I gave him. I have heard that story from like 30 different people. 30. And I highly doubt that all 30 have experiences. I've never experienced that. I've never heard anyone over 30 even share that. But I keep hearing everyone share that story. And I'm sure you've heard people share that story too. It's such a staple of people complaining about beggars that I don't think it happened to everybody that I know said it. I really don't. I think it's just one of those meme things that people say to look interesting. Like it's a healthy haven or something that we would all dislike an ungrateful, ingrateful beggar. And yet we still look charitable by giving them our food. So you get to have it both ways. You get to have, oh, look at me, I'm so giving. And then you get to have, oh, I resent this poor person for not appreciating everything that I've done for them. So, uh, no, I, any if I hear that story again, I'm just going to call you out on it. Like, how you, I heard you and this other circle of friends that you're in say separate stories where they were in similar places because they never venture out of their hipster enclaves and they got similar food because uh, it's not as diverse food-wise as you'd think in those. And uh, go fuck yourself. Oh, I am a little pissy fuck this week. I have a lot to complain about. Um, well, not really. I, I've just found that being outwardly crabby with people has been so rewarding. So this is a way in which the misanthropic viewpoint taken with a sense of humor has been outrageously rewarding. Example the first. I, like the fag that I am, went to the symphony. All right, hardy, har, har, uh, blah, blah, blah. 
I went to see Beethoven's eight. Well, that's not true. I went to see the suite for Bartok's Miraculous Mandarin, but it was sandwiched between Beethoven's eighth and Tchaikovsky's sixth. I only went for the middle one, the most derided of the program usually. So I get there, and I'm one of the few people under 40 in the orchestra. <clears throat> and I even got the seat for cheap. I am in. I was. I was pretty far back. I was in row LL, and I was sitting on the end. And this lady that was sitting next to me took up the space under my seat for her own coat and bag, and then she had a bunch of other shit like a sweater under her own seat. And I was okay with that because I had a little bit of leeway from where the seat was, and then the aisle. I put my coat over the chair. And then I just put my bag a little bit in front, and then I crossed my legs, all right? All harmless, I was within my personal space. And then this meathead comes up to me. With the fucking stripy shirt and red socks cap. And he goes, uh, you know, I don't know what row this is because your coat is blocking the thing. So if you can get your coat off so I could understand... And I said, hey, the row in front of me is KK. The row behind me is MM. All right, you figure it out. And if you can't, there are professionals here to help. (laughs) And he goes, all right, you fucking asshole, real loud. And then he walks away. And so I decided to stand up and go, deductive reasoning, sir. Deductive reasoning. Had my fists all balled up, shouting up at the ceiling. Oh, it was great, and I didn't go with anybody, which is even better. Never, going to shows with people is overrated. Especially symphony-type classical shows, because you're really dragging other people to that. And in my case, it's very rare to find someone who wants to see the modern classical that I'm interested in. You know? Or um, even like when uh, they do summer programs and they do like fucking Gershwin or uh, jazz standards. You know, it's hard to get people to go. And then you have to worry about how excited they are. I don't want to worry about that shit. And then or if they're too passionate, arguing with them later about why it was unacceptable for me to enjoy myself in any way. So I went by myself. Didn't have to wait outside for anyone. Didn't have to worry about a check to eat beforehand. I just fucking ate a Frosty and went to Symphony. The problem is, going by yourself doesn't necessitate that you will not be distracted by the other cunts in the audience. So what happened? Everyone was smitten with Beethoven's 8th, right? One of his shortest symphony... I think his shortest symphony even though it definitely felt interminably long. You know why? Because it's Beethoven, right? And then the second one was Bartok's Miraculous Mandarin, which I fucking loved. They did such a great job with it. And uh, the problem was there were two people talking behind me the whole time. They were silent for this outdated 200-year-old shit that, you know, it's they named a dog after him. Who gives a fuck? All right? 
I get that he was a genius or whatever, but let's move on already. And they were all in enraptured with this fucking symphony that had that fake out ending that classical had all the time. Bup 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 but uh bup da 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 and you're like fuck once that second one comes in like oh go fuck yourself this isn't over Ugh. Anyway, did the Miraculous Mandarin Suite pull that shit? No. It ends real abrupt, like, like, BAM! Motherfucker! And it's over. And I was so in support, I was so supportive of the fact that they did that show that I stood the fuck up. Alright? And I don't stand unless it's for a good cause. I mean, you know, concert-wise. Unless I'm being for... Whatever, you get the idea. But I actually, during that suite, I uh, I turned around and I went, shh, real loud. And then I realized that they were both kids. And they were both nerdy looking kids with the Harry Potter glasses and the long hair. Uh, like the girl had the long fucking... Like, she looked like she played auto harp in um, the tribe in the musical Hair. Like, she could have been a librarian, but she hit the weed a little too hard when she was, like, 12. But she still looked younger than 12 somehow. And then the kid just looked like a uh, a bull cut, like a Mo Howard version of her. And I thought, where are the parents? And then, you know, my boyfriend had a good point that maybe they were playing on stage. <laughs> and they were just used to interrupting their shit. And I thought, actually, oh, the harp player kind of looks like uh, these these little kids could be offspring of theirs. Um, which is their own problem. And then I had to then go with the task of tuning them out and focusing very hard on the concert. And then during Tchaikovsky's sixth, 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 Tchaikovsky's sixth, sixth, sixth. Dude, it's really hard to say sixth when you're trying to say it intentionally. Uh, Tchaikovsky's sixth. <laughs> okay. And uh, there's this. I even know that the uh, there aren't really any fake outs in that symphony like in Beethoven. Kill me. It just kind of ends, it, it's so, that symphony is very clear and crisp. It's kind of like the uh, clearness and crispness that, like, Mozart gets a lot of credit for. And believe me, Mozart is clear and crisp. But man, Tchaikovsky really put a nice, he uh, put a nice melody in there. And uh, I, I never really heard it from beginning to end, but I enjoyed it. And I knew it wasn't over yet. Because there was just this long, uh, there's this long drawn out note in the end, and then the conductor waits a little bit. But before that even note de- uh, decrescended where it was supposed to, some old lady uh, rode down for me, was like, "Oh, great, 
absolutely great. Well, let me do an old, I got to do an old lady voice. That great. That was great. Okay, anyway, I need to do a better old lady voice. That was absolutely great. That was wonderful. And it was so loud and reverberant. Oh, God. Um. Oh, and then uh, the conductor waited so long. It was great. He held the position after the song was over for like 10 long seconds. And it was great. And then finally he put the baton down or whatever and did that little shrug. Introduced the concert master. But my blood was still boiling from the from the old lady yelling before the concert was over. So I thought this is where this is where the misanthropy comes into play. And uh, as she walked past me, I went, oh, great. That was great. Real nice. <laughs> I mean, if she can't hear when the symphony is over, how is she going to hear me? <clears throat> and it was really cleansing, you know, just harmless. This is why I'm kind of putting the lie to the fact that live music is supposedly better. Oh, there's nothing like seeing it live, right? But in defense of records, that ambient crackle is way less distracting than an old lady yelling in the middle or two little kids bitching behind you. Also, when you get uh, like a recording from, you know, Leonard Bernstein or Fritz Reiner or whoever, some of the great composers and some of the great conductors and orchestras, you know, Eugene Ormandy with the Philadelphia one. I mean, you never, you, you don't, you, you can definitely assure yourself that it's not going to be the a youth orchestra quality type thing. I mean, God bless you, youth and your dreams. But, uh, you know, stick to your dreams a few years and then get back to me. Ugh, I shouldn't say that. Uh, I'm actually going to see a youth orchestra show. They're doing Dvorak and Bartok. It's going to be sweet. Anyway, okay. It was just another appeal to why you should just enjoy things alone. I can put on the record. I can space out with the headphones. With noise that is more tune-outable than not. Um, <clears throat> it might not sound as great. But if you know the work, when it sounded great, it's a nice... Like, it's all going to be a replacement or a surrogate for that moment or experience when you heard it the first time. So just go for it. <clears throat> anyway, uh, I just, I'm letting myself be a little bit more fast and loose with vocalizing my crabby shit. And it's, it's paying dividends. <clears throat> it really is. I was on the train. I was on the subway. And it was ridiculously packed for the time it was. It was like 6.30 a.m. I'm trying to go to the gym before going to work. And it was so fucking packed. And it gets down three or four stops down. And it's beyond belief. And once again, we have that classic situation where people are trying to get into the sub uh, to get into the subway train before people are let out. But here's the thing. Not only is that happening, but before anyone gets out, there, there's this woman up at the front right at that door going, uh, can you make room, please make room for me, please. 
And the people on the announcers are like, everyone, please step away to let people out of the train. And she's there screaming, uh, can you make room, please? And then there's other people going, there is no room, lady. No, ma'am, we can't. And here I am in the chair right across from her. And she had her foot in the door. She goes, can anyone move? And I said, uh, you can sit on my lap, sweetheart. And then she backed off and got off the train. The great thing about that is the 25 people around me laughed. And we all started talking to each other. And when you're on a train that's that uncomfortable, you got to be able to talk to each other. I mean, this is why the Jews had a sense of humor. They were able to talk to each other in the cattle cars, right? Weren't they? Were they not? Maybe they had a good sense of humor from not being able to talk. Truth be told, whatever it is, um, I guess all I want to say is those cattle cars did something great for the Jews. (laughs) Okay. But it it struck up a conversation, you know? And it made the time go. I mean, we were less distracted by how crowded it was by being able to trash the lady. Like, I broke the ice. And even if she went to blog about the sexual harassment, I'm sure that she got over it in a way that was manageable. And the thing is, I haven't gotten over how terrific that moment was for making that ride much more pleasant. I haven't gotten over it. And I hope that these other people remember the benefits of just making things happen. So I've been having a ball with that. Uh, I haven't had any repercussions from it yet, but I know I'll get the fuck beat out of me. Uh, I'm just saying that um, holding it all in has had long-term chronic issues for my friends, but then just, you know, slipping in a joke here and there. It makes the cynicism so much more worthwhile and entertaining. It makes you a quicker wit. It makes you an entertaining... Hopefully, uh, if you're an entertaining, crabby person, that's what makes for great... That balance of anger and funny. Ugh. Okay, last one. I was on the bus. And the, uh, the guy was breaking like crazy. And anytime. It was such a cliche in terms of the breaking of that bus that I dropped the book I was reading. And then when I dropped the book and went down to pick it up, he braked again and it skidded farther out of my reach. It was like, uh, it's like trying to get the medallion, that little MacGuffin medallion before the door shuts down. And then you can't, uh, you can't put it into that little like vaginal click hole in the spaceship to stop it from bombing the earth. This evil alien planet. That's what it was like. That whole thing where you try to grab it, something you try to grab at a stake to uh, plunge it into the vampire that's holding you by the ankle, and then it slides out of your reach a little bit. That whole trope with the Hans Zimmer music under it. And then you're like, oh, I wonder how this movie's gonna end. That's what it was like on that fucking bus. And finally, now I wasn't the one that started it, but I have to say the breaking wasn't even about other traffic. 
He was just going down an open road, breaking very sporadically, but with passion, very convict, uh, with conviction. And finally, someone says, hey, easy on the brakes. And then other people on the bus started to laugh. The guy that was driving had this muffled, completely incoherent re- And I think the kid that was sitting in front of me said, or like he looked a little ashamed. And I had to tell him, uh, look, the, the laughs are, we're all with you. The laughs are for you. Um... Because we we all agree. But what that did is that opened up a game and a camaraderie amongst the passengers. And uh, we like it was a whole bus full of ball busters. So, <laughs> so he says easy on the brakes. And then it, like the first or two or three times he broke after that, it was in unison. Easy on the brakes, dude. And then he would break again, and uh, someone yelled, uh, uh, Can I get off early? I'm going to get sick. And then, like, two other people went, Here, here. Oh, it was hilarious. And then when, when he would break again, we would all sort of slam forward, and they'd go, Whoa! Uh, I think my glasses almost got knocked off in another classic trope. And it, it once again, it made a terrible thing way more entertaining at the expense of one person. And, like, it's just one person. Who gives a shit? Now, I know what all of you are thinking, right? But what about that Ursula K. Le Guin story? The one that walked away from Omelas, where it's this paradise because they have a kid chained up in a basement, and, you know, he experiences all their suffering. What about that? Isn't the bus driver just like that little kid? That story isn't even close to a philosophical conundrum. It's really, truly not. It's not. Because we already do that shit. We have whole nations that uh, indulge themselves at the expense of whole other nations. Their pleasure is derived from how little they account for scarcity or sharing. And so there is this one kid trapped in um, the inability to develop economically. You get the idea. But anyway, yeah, absolutely. I am a huge fan of making one person suffer for the other ones to uh, be redeemed. So was Jesus. You know? If you have one of those what would Jesus do cock rings, that is what Jesus would do. He would die so that we could live. Well, not die, I guess, because he, he is risen. Or as I like to say, just to troll people, he was risen. Christ has gone, Christ has risen, Christ won't come again. Speaking of not coming again, this affects her, is really blowing. And, uh, what else? You guys should read that story that I just referenced that you probably all haven't read. The lesson here, I think, overall... If you can bust balls with your face to someone else's face with no harm done, oh, that's like the cure for cancer. And your body is going to tremor and tremble a little bit out of fear of what will happen to you. And here you go. You shouldn't even trust it because if you just go for it, it'll stop cancer. Your body is telling you to not be a cunt 
a mean fuckface uh, in order for it to get a stress-induced cancer. So should you trust your body? No. Never. That is the end for this week. And I will talk to you the next week. Okay? Alright. Good. I'm glad we agreed on that then. Perfect. Excellent. Good. Bye. I said bye.